I think uh, most all of you have heard of Apple Corporation. Yeah? If you haven't, you are, are from a different planet, I think. Apple Corporation, that highly successful, most, one of the most successful corporations in the world a few months ago. They had $100 billion of cash reserves, um, more than the United States government has or had. I'm not sure where the, the case is exactly today, but wildly successful. And, and as, I, as I think about them, I think one of the reasons they've been so successful is because they've worked in great secrecy and have unveiled and rolled out their products before the world even knew what they were working on. I mean, the case in point is the iPhone. Five years ago in January... Uh, January 9th, 2007, Steve Jobs took the stage at Macworld 2007, and this is what he said. He said, this is a day I've been looking forward to for two and a half years. Every once in a while, an evolutionary product comes along that changes everything. And so he reviewed, in 1984, the Macintosh computer came out, and he said that um, it didn't just change Apple. He said that computer changed the whole industry, and it did. Just the graphical user interface just changed everything. And then he said in 2001, Apple did it again, they introduced the iPod, which didn't just change the way we listen to music, it changed the whole music industry, which is very true and real, how music is distributed. And then he said, today Apple is going to reinvent the phone. And of course they did. They put a full-fledged operating system on a small handheld device which allowed for applications which anybody can basically dream up, whether that's music or video or internet browsing or reading or note-taking or photos or database or contacts or calendar or email or games or anything. And I say the iPhone didn't just change the way we talk on phones. It changed mobile communicating and it changed the way that we are able to communicate on the go. Well, today as we come to our exposition of the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see another unveiling, really, that, that changed everything, if you will. It's the unveiling is the true identity of Jesus Christ. It's often called the transfiguration. So if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark 9. So we've been working through our Gospel here. We've come to Mark chapter 9. And before I read the text this week, begin the first 13 verses of chapter 9, I just want to review a little bit from last week. These are coming right on the heels of what Jesus said in chapter 8, verse 34, when Jesus said, If anyone wishes to come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. The hard words. Jesus says, if you want to follow Him, you need to give up everything to follow Him. And now in chapter 9, Jesus basically shows why it is that we can expect that He can expect so much from us. It's because He's the glorious and the majestic One. What we see in the first part of Luke, Mark chapter 9 is so stunning that anybody should be able to see why Jesus was able to demand so much. In fact, going back to my Apple illustration, there's a power in their products. And um, by nature, I'm, I'm not a Mac, Okay. I'm a PC, right? There's a Mac and a PC. I'm a, I'm a PC, all right? However, I have begun using this device, my, my standard iPod Touch, and it's been amazing. And it is it's bringing me closer to convert, all right? But I, I still think I'm a, I'm a PC. Um, but know that, that the majesty of Jesus is way better than a device that we might have. But it's the majesty of Jesus that ought to persuade us into His camp 
that ought to cause us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him. In our text this morning, we're really going to see behind the curtain of the flesh of Jesus. Because behind the curtain of the, the veil of Jesus is His true reality. I've entitled my message this morning, Behind the Curtain. Just kind of, kind of Jesus opens Himself up so you see really what, what is there. I remember a few years ago at our house, we had some trees in our backyard and um, we took several of them down and when they came down, it was like whatever, the next morning or the next day, I, I, I got up and I was there in the kitchen whatever, doing some dishes or something. I looked out and I'm like, <laughs> what is that? I, I never saw that before, but I never saw the houses behind us because the trees were there covering the way. And so likewise today, what, what's going to happen is Jesus is going to take away those trees and show us the real Jesus, what is right there behind Him. And until this point in the Gospel, the identity of Jesus has really been somewhat veiled. Of course, He's shown Himself in the miracles, in the power, and in His teaching. And yet His identity of the Messiah didn't come until chapter 8, verse 29, when Peter said, you're the Christ. And that opened everything up, and yet it's, it's still veiled. But in our text this morning, we're going to get a glimpse of the real Jesus. We're going to see behind His flesh, behind the curtain. Let me read our text for us this morning. Mark chapter 9. Verses 1 to 13. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them, along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And he did not know what to answer, for they were, became terrified. And then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. And as they were coming down from the mountain, He gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. And they seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first and restore all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come. And they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. Let's pray. Father, I pray in this moment that You would reveal this text to us. God, we aren't there on the mountain. We can only describe it in our hearts and our minds. But I pray You'd stir us to see the real Jesus, to see what is behind the curtain, and to embrace the reality of Christ. As the song said, all I have is Christ. That is really all of our hope in this life. And God, may You do that in our hearts and our minds this morning as we think and reflect upon Jesus, whose name we pray, Amen. 
Well, our text begins with a very curious verse. Here, verse 9 has caused many people to scratch their heads. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, this is a promise. That's what Jesus started with His word, truly. Amen. That's the, the point of this word. He's saying this is a sure fact that there are some of you here, and we don't know whether Jesus was just speaking with the disciples at this moment, or whether He's still speaking with the crowds, as verse 34 was identified when the crowd was there. But, but somebody's saying, he said, there, there, there are some listeners here today who are not going to die until the kingdom of God comes. There are really two elements to that promise. There's a, the promise of a people and then the promise of a time. And they're going to live until that time would come. Now, possible interpretation of this verse from many. Um, some say, and this is somewhat the most natural reading of this in our minds, is that it refers to the second coming of Jesus. And that there are going to be some people there who are alive when Jesus comes a second time. This is the official teaching of the Mormon church, by the way. Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon religion, as it says in Doctrine and Covenants section 7, quote, inquired through the Urim and the Thummim as to whether John, the beloved disciple, tarried in the flesh or had died. Because he had this question about, well, did, did, did John last until the coming of Christ? Is, is he still alive? You can read about that in John 21 that kind of leads implications. Maybe John will live a, a long time. And when the, Umi, the Urim and the Thummim came back, which was basically something taken from the Old Testament that he brought in and did some kind of thing with the priest, they received the revelation. This is what Doctrine and Covenant says, that John has the power over death until he returns. They believe that he is still alive. Where he is right now, they don't know. I don't know. I find it hard to believe since it's become 2,000 years that he's around. I don't think anyone is living that long. Maybe olive trees can grow a long time, but people can't live quite that long. And I believe it's difficult for a man to believe 2,000 years. I think there's a better way to understand this verse than that. And it has to do with, rather than understanding the, 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 the time so much as the focus, so the kingdom of God coming way at the end, it's, it's kind of understanding what is the kingdom of God really talking about? Is it talking about when Christ would come back in the future sometime? Or is there a different way of understanding the kingdom of God that, that we can embrace as a little bit different? Maybe the kingdom of God has already come in the lifetime of the disciples. I think there's reason to believe that. Jesus came preaching, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom is near. In the days of Jesus, the kingdom was there. Repent and believe in the Gospel. I don't think it's unreasonable to assume that the, the coming of the kingdom was near the time of Jesus. In fact, this has caused some to think of uh, the interpretation of verse 1 is that Jesus was referring to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And when you read Mark 13, you find out that there's lots of things in Mark 13 that seem to prophesy of A.D. 70. And certainly many of the disciples and the crowd were still alive during that time, just 40 years later. And so some believe that that's what it's talking about. Perhaps. 
Or, or some would, would pull it back. Rather than 70 A.D., they, they'd pull it back to the time maybe of Pentecost when the Spirit came upon the church. A large event. Great power on that occasion. 3,000 people coming to Christ. And, and you think about the Kingdom coming. There was something about the Spirit coming that made even the start of the church, the inauguration of the New Age, something where the, the Kingdom has come in many ways. We have been, Colossians 1 says, transferred from the dominion of darkness into the Kingdom of His beloved Son. We've come into His kingdom. The, the kingdom, yes, is here. It's not fully here, but it is here. And so maybe He's talking about Pentecost. Perhaps. Or maybe even pushing it back closer to the life of, of Christ maybe refers to a resurrection and ascension of Jesus. I mean, this was a large event. Jesus raised from the dead, ascended to heaven where He now intercedes for us. That inaugurated the coming of the kingdom for sure. Best, however... I do believe the best interpretation comes that verses 2 through 8 are describing the coming of the kingdom with the, the glory of Jesus being in their midst. And I say this for a couple of reasons. First of all, there's this time element that verse 2 begins six days later. Right? Just, just here it is a week later what's happened. I think there is a connection between verse 1 and verse 2. Uh, furthermore, when Matthew and Luke quote the same thing that verse 1 says. In fact, almost, almost exactly. Matthew's got it and Luke's got it. In both those instances, they both follow with a, a story of the transfiguration. Jesus, or Matthew in, in Matthew 17 and Luke in Luke chapter 9. So, there is a connection in all three Gospels. And I think the transfiguration is a taste of the kingdom and in fact, one of the things we see here in verses 2 through 8 is the unveiling. That's my first point here this morning. The unveiling. It's when Jesus peels back His flesh and He is unveiled. Jesus took His three closest disciples with Him, Peter and James and John. Within the twelve, there was this inner circle. Peter and James and John went with Him on several occasions just all by Himself. When Jesus went to pray, He left the twelve disciples here, took Peter and James and John to pray in Gethsemane, and then He went on. When he went in to heal Jairus' daughter, it was Peter and James and John who got to come and see. And here, Peter and James and John get front row seat as the closest, most intimate disciples. The other nine remained at the bottom of the hill, the bottom of the mountain, and we will look at that next week when they were impotent in their faith. Prayers lifted up there, but we'll see that next week. But this week, we're on top of the mountain. Now, what mountain this is? Some say Mount Tabor, um, 11 miles west of the Sea of Galilee. In fact, on, on top of this mountain, um, there is a, a monastery there. There's a church there that's half Eastern Orthodox, half Roman Catholic, and it's called the Church of the Transfiguration. And so many believe that this is where the Transfiguration was, but the problem is it's more of a hill than a mountain. It's 2,000 feet ab above sea level and hardly a description that, Paul, that, that Mark even says here of a high mountain. Uh, I, I think better is Mount Hermon which is north, 12 miles northeast of Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus and His disciples were, according to Mark chapter 8, verse 27. That tower is 9,000 feet above sea level. I don't know if it snows on the top of Mount Tabor, maybe in some rare circumstances, but I know it snows on the top of Mount Hermon because that provides the water as it, as it comes down into the Jordan River into the Sea of Galilee. It's high up in the mountains. In fact, you can see the pictures there, the difference in the children's notes between Mount Tabor, which is just kind of this mound, and Mount Hermon, which is, which is really large. It is a, a large mountain. That's why I think most 
likely, but you know, the location doesn't really matter. What, hap- what matters is what took place. And what took place is no less than a miracle. It says Jesus was transformed. He was transfigured. He was changed. Transformed into something different. This Greek word is what we get the word metamorphosed. He morphed into something different. And the transfiguration is described in verse 3. His garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launder on earth can whiten them. Jesus, catch this, began to shine. His garments became white. His garments became exceedingly white. They became shining white. In fact, they were so white that no launderer on earth could ever make them whiter than what Jesus' garments were. Not the strongest soap, not the strongest bleach could make garments as white as what Jesus' garments were on the top of the mountain. Now, how could that be? Did Jesus take His garments, take them off, and go wash them really fast and make make them shiny? Well, I think the clue of what happened here comes in this first adjective describing His garment. It says here in verse 3, His garments became radiant. Literally, it means that they shone. That is, they were shone like light. Uh, I I think here's here's a good picture of what happened. Okay? I got a, one of my t-shirts here, and uh, it's pretty white, it's a pretty clean t-shirt, right? Would you say so? Yeah, Ethan, would you say so? Pretty white, pretty clean. And uh, this is, Jesus was wearing more of a, a toga kind of thing. But here's what I think was happening. What was going on underneath the shirt was this. Right? If that makes sense, let's put it like this. That's. And, and you know what? Moms, I appreciate the way you do laundry and I appreciate the whiteness you do, but you can't make your, your clothes glow. And I think that's the key is that, that Jesus' garment was shining, it was, it was glowing because there was something underneath that was, that was glowing out of it and making His garments really white. And it was His skin. The skin of Jesus was so transformed it began to, to go. Uh, Matthew says that Jesus' face shone like the sun. That, that, that there was something about His face that was radiant. And like the sun, I mean, they, they would have had to shield their eyes a little bit. And maybe their, His clothes is what they saw because the sun could be shielded by the, the clothes that diffused all the light and they could see Jesus shining through them. In fact, that's how John describes Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. He describes Him as glowing. Revelation 1 is the picture of uh, Jesus in all His glory. And it says in Revelation 1 verse 14, His head and His hair were white like white wool, like snow. And His garments... His eyes were like a flame of fire. And His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And His face was like the sun shining in its strength. Anytime uh, Revelation chapter 1 describes Jesus, it describes Him as light and emanating and, and shining forth. And so it makes total sense that Jesus here, on the Mount of Transfiguration, was just shining through His clothes. And you ask, how can this be? How could Jesus be changed like that? And my answer to you is, it's the wrong question to ask. What's the right question to ask? 
How is it not shining through? How is it that His skin and His covering of His body keeps the, the glory of Jesus from shining through His skin at all times? It says in Colossians 1.19 that the fullness of deity dwelt in Him. That's what it says in John chapter 1. Where we became flesh and dwelt among us. And the real question is, how could He keep His glory in? But here it is. The the, the curtain is being taken back. And this is behind the curtain. This is the real Jesus. And then the disciples saw something which I think personally is even more amazing. Verse 4, Elijah appeared to them along with Moses and they're talking to Jesus. I mean, when you understand Jesus of His full divinity, you can understand how He glowed like He did. I mean, that makes sense. It says in 1 Timothy 6, 16, that, that God is one who dwells in unapproachable light. And so when Jesus gives a glimpse of His divinity, you can say, oh yes, He is unapproachable. He is light. I can understand how light flows from His body. But Elijah and Moses, think about it, raised from the dead, appearing on the mountain, as physical as Jesus is, talking with Jesus, I mean, it's amazing, and it fills us with all sorts of questions. Actually, it raised more questions than we can answer, but but questions like this, like, how did that happen? I mean, how do you have these two people raised from the dead, and and how is it that they can talk, and how is it that they can recognize the disciples, how is it they can recognize Elijah and Moses, and, and how is it that they talk to Jesus, and, and, and how much do they know about what's happening on the earth, and, and did they know Jesus, like, personally? Or did they have to introduce each other at that moment of time? Or, or why did these two come on the scene? I mean, why was it Elijah and Moses? Why not Abraham and David? If you think about the most key people in the Old Testament, I think about Abraham, the one to whom the Abrahamic covenant was made, that con- unconditional promise in, in Genesis chapter 12, or, or the Davidic covenant where Jesus will be the king. Why, why not these two prominent people? And yet it was Moses and Elijah. You say, why? Well, there are more questions than we can answer. And, and I, I think that just a few observations will, will help here. I mean, first of all, I think that Moses was a prime figure of the law, where Elijah was one of the most prominent prophets. So these two coming and representing the law and the prophets, maybe representing the entire Old Testament, now giving testimony to Jesus. Also, these men, it's interesting, they experienced mysterious deaths. Um, Moses died on Mount Nebo. We're not told where the Lord buried him. We're just told he's buried there somewhere. Nobody knows where the tomb is. Deuteronomy 34, verse 6. But from Jude 9, we know that there was this dispute about the body of Jesus. So there's mystery on his death. And Elijah, you remember, 2 Kings chapter 2, was taken up in a whirlwind to heaven. So there's mystery surrounding their death. Maybe it's... Important, I I don't know. Also, these men had prominent mountaintop ministries. Moses received the law on top of Mount Sinai. And Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. But listen, here's the exciting thing. We know what they were talking about. We know what they were talking about. Luke chapter 9 says this. Moses and Elijah were speaking with Jesus of His departure which is about to accomplish at Jerusalem. His departure, his exodus, his taken out of the world. They were talking, catch this, with Jesus about his upcoming crucifixion. How much they knew about how much would take place on the cross is a mystery. They don't know. But something was stirring in heaven. 
and, and, and there was this buzz in heaven and they knew and they were talking to Jesus maybe to get first-hand knowledge. Maybe they didn't know because it says in Ephesians 3 that the mystery of God, which is the Gospel basically, was, was unknown and because it was held mystery. It was held, held tight a secret but then was fully known in the Gospel of Christ. So maybe Elijah and Moses knew something but I think that it was that there was this buzz in heaven. Something's happening. What's happening? And getting back into my Apple illustration, uh, I think about Steve Jobs. One of the brilliant things he said is that, yeah, I remember one, one invite to one of his keynote addresses. I think he said something like this. I, I'm not totally prepared on this, but he said, hey, I've got something for you to show you. I think you want to come. It's like, and then it causes buzz around the whole technological world. Okay, what's Apple got? What do they have? They have something. And then everybody goes to his keynote to figure out what it is that they have. And so likewise here, I think Moses and Elijah, I don't think they knew everything, but I think they knew something and there was a stir in heaven and they came down and they were talking to Jesus about it. It's what they wanted to talk about. I mean, they didn't talk about the weather. They didn't talk about the economy. They didn't talk about the Romans. They they talked about Jesus and his departure. Jesus and his upcoming trip to Jerusalem, his upcoming death. That's what was on their minds. But Peter's mind wasn't there. Look at verse 5. Mark 9, verse 5. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, the reason why Peter said this is there in verse 6. He did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Jesus didn't know what to say. He was afraid, and, and so he just spoke what's on his mind. All right, case in point, if you don't know what to say, what should you do? Don't say anything. And so likewise here, Peter just said what was on his mind. And what's on his mind? He said this. He says, I want to keep this moment. This is a great moment. I'm here, Jesus, with you. And I'm here with Elijah. I'm here with Moses. Let's make some tents so we can camp out here. So we can stay here for a couple of weeks, maybe some months. I just want to stay up here and be with you guys. And, and what was Elijah and Moses and Jesus talking about again? They're talking about the trip to Jerusalem and the suffering that's going to happen. And, and Peter says, no, I want to stay here. Let's be here because this is where we want to be. His plan is to remain on the mountain. Jesus' plan is to get off the mountain to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on three days rise again. And, and I do believe that Peter's words here, verse 5, are a bit similar to back in chapter 8, verse 32, when Peter rebuked Jesus when he talked about his plan to go to Jerusalem and die. Peter wanted to stay on the mountain. And I think in many ways, Jesus could have said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're setting your interest on on man, right? Rather than upon the Lord and going to suffer and die, which is what really this section of Mark is all about, right? Revealing what Messiah is going to do. He's going to suffer and die. And we get divine confirmation actually about how bad it was. Look at verse 7. Then a cloud formed overshadowing them and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. As that goes of the baptism of Jesus, right? When Jesus came out of the water, the Spirit was descending like a dove. A voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Mark chapter 1, verse 11. And the only difference here is these three words. Listen to Him. I think the idea is this. Is that God is coming out of the heavens, and He focuses His attention upon Jesus, and He says, Hey, this is my Son. I'm pleased with Him. 
listen to him. And that connotation of the word listen isn't just to listen and say, oh, that's nice, like we listen to music. No, the connotation there is listening and submitting and obeying. And and here's, here's God himself saying, Jesus is my son, obey him. Listen to what he says, believe what he says, and do what he says. Even when he says, chapter 8, verse 34, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. When Jesus says he can be suffering, killed, and rise on the third day, follow him. Whatever this man says, you follow him. I think that's the, the point there of this whole listen to him, obey him. And notice how second-rate Elijah and Moses are. Here's the voice of heaven saying nothing about Elijah and Moses. Focusing all his attention upon Jesus. Even though these are the major players in Jewish history, God the Father totally ignores them like they weren't even there because there's only one guy on the mountain who's important. It's not the disciples. It's not Elijah. It's not Moses. It's Jesus. Well, no sooner had these words come from heaven, the cloud lifted and they found that they were all alone on the mountain, verse 8, and all at once they looked around and saw no one anymore except Jesus alone. This experience was done. Uh, No possibility to build a booth anymore for Elijah and Moses. Jesus had unveiled who He was. He's the Lord of glory. You should listen to Him. I didn't sink in though. Like these knuckle-headed disciples. Just like we are knuckle-headed as well. They They didn't get it. And so they need some help to think it through. And so after the unveiling, verses 1 through 9, here comes my second point, the debriefing. Verses 9 through 13. The debriefing. Right? We find Jesus, verse 9, coming down from the mountain. And Jesus begins to process with them about everything that they had just seen. They had just witnessed this wondrous sight. Jesus peeled back His humanity. They saw a glimpse of His deity. And think about it. If you were one of the disciples and you had an experience like this, what would your first intention be? Your first heart? I'm going to go and I'm going to tell everybody, you are going to believe. I went up this mountain. It was Peter, James, and John and I. And Jesus was up there and, and we were there. And Jesus began to show and His shine. He is this glorious One. What an amazing thing this is. Maybe calling the Jerusalem Gazette. Maybe trying to get all these advertisers made to go and, and tell His story. I mean, isn't that how things work? I mean, you go and see a great movie and what happens when you come back? You know, tell everyone about how great the movie was. Or you go on some great trip and you come back and you want to tell everyone how great that trip is. I mean, just watch when Chris and Becca come back from their, their trip in Mexico. They're going to come and they're just going to be talking with everybody about their trip because that's what they want to share. They've got this experience and they want to share it with you. Right? Or you see an accident outside your house. What are you going to do? You're going to talk about this accident that you experienced that you saw with all your friends. Oh yeah, this car was coming here and this car was coming here and then they smashed and the police came. And, and you're just going to talk about your, something, something extraordinary like this you're going to want to say. And Jesus had other plans. Verse 9, as they were coming down from the mountain, He gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. Don't talk with anybody. Now, this is the last of the commands of the book of Mark to remain silent. Um, it's happened several times. The leper, Jesus said, see that you say nothing to anyone. When Jesus raised a little girl from the dead, He gave strict orders to the parents and the disciples say nothing about what took place. When he gave hearing and speech to the deaf man, he gave orders not to tell anyone. Peter said, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them, tell no one about that. And here we are, the command, coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, not to relate to anyone what had happened until he rose from the dead. 
And you got to say, well, why? Right? We try to ask this question every time we come across a verse like this. And I think it all has to do with timing, actually. I think that uh, it's not that Jesus didn't want to know, didn't want the world to know that He was the Messiah. It's not that He didn't want the world to know His power and majesty. It's just that now is not the time. It might interrupt His plans. He's going to go and suffer and die, and the more that His glory is put out would inhibit His suffering and His death. There would be a time, oh, when He rose from the dead, but now was not the time. As far as we know, Peter and James and John did a good job of keeping their mouths shut on this one. Unlike the leper, right? Unlike others, they just go out and the word spread all the more. As Jesus tried to keep it quiet, the word kept going. But Peter and James and John, I think, kept quiet. They didn't have a problem with that part of verse 9. They had a problem with the second part, right? Don't tell anyone until the Son of Man rose from the dead. That was where their confusion was. They could keep their mouths shut, but they couldn't figure out what he means by Son of Man rising from the dead. And so as it says, even in verse 10, they seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. That's not that these three disciples were unfamiliar with the concept of resurrection. I mean, they witnessed Jesus raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. They knew the resurrection of the last day and they just witnessed Elijah and Moses having risen from the dead and talking. So they knew about resurrection, but I think that the issue was they didn't have uh, they didn't have an understanding of Messiah raising from the dead because they didn't have a concept of Messiah suffering. And without suffering, there's no reason to rise from the dead. It just wasn't a category for them. It just wasn't computing. Why would Messiah need to be resurrected from the dead? So they were talking about it. And I, I can imagine the talk going down the mountain. I mean, I've walked a few trails in my life that, you know, sometimes you're walking with one group of people, sometimes you're walking with another track, and, and you're walking down this mountain, you know, you're Mount Hermon, and, and we're here, and Jesus is about 50 feet ahead of us, and we're walking down the mountain, and, and, and we're kind of back here as disciples, kind of whispering, what does this mean? What does it mean? And Jesus is, is off there. And then when Jesus kind of comes back, you're not talking about other things, and maybe you, you separate from Jesus a little bit, and you're, you're talking more. What does this mean? What does it mean that He's going to rise from the dead? But I don't think that's all they were talking about. I think they were talking about, talking about the whole experience. Moses what? and Elijah, how, how does this all fit? And their minds were like, were like blown to bits as they were trying to understand what was taking place. Because uh, I believe there's more than just resurrection from the dead because they asked about Elijah, verse 11. They asked him saying, why is it the scribes say Elijah must come first? Right? I think they're trying to put all this together. I mean, they've just seen and heard Elijah on the mountain. They're confused and Jesus helps, here it is, by affirming that Elijah, yes, must come first, verse 12. Elijah does come first and restore all things. Yes, the scribes are right. Yes, Elijah will come first. Yes, Elijah will restore all things. And then Jesus gets to the heart of their misunderstanding, though. It's not about Elijah. It's about the suffering Messiah. It's the suffering of the Son of Man. And yet, how is it written, second half of verse 12, that the Son of Man, that He will suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Here's the core of their, of their problem, is a suffering Messiah. And if I think they get the suffering, I think they would get the resurrection. I think it would just follow. But Peter stumbled this statement when it was first said in chapter 8, right? Verse 32, when Jesus says, was stating the matter plainly, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. It doesn't work. It doesn't make sense in their mind. In chapter 9, 
Verse 31, Jesus says much the same thing. The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill Him. And when He's been killed, He will rise three days later. Verse 32, they did not understand this statement. And then in chapter 10, verse 33 and 34, when He says the same thing, I think they show by their actions they didn't understand that statement because they were seeking glory in the kingdom rather than understanding the suffering to begin first. But listen, Messiah will suffer. And then in verse 13, Jesus returns to Elijah. But I say to you, Elijah indeed has come. And they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. Now, Mark's account somewhat cryptic. Matthew gives some details that help us in our understanding. Let me just read from Matthew the same account. Jesus said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you, Elijah has already came and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them about John the Baptist. And I think that's the key. Elijah would come first. He would restore all things. And John the Baptist was that Elijah who came first. Two, by the way, restore all things. It's amazing language even he uses here in... Um, In verse 12, Elijah does come first and restore all things. In some sense there, I believe that's why the the kingdom has already come in some sense because it says that John the Baptist was Elijah. He has restored all things, right? Just calling people to repentance, getting people to think about God. Now, not fully, certainly the kingdom of God hasn't come, but it has come in part. Now, Mark has already clued us that John the Baptist is Elijah. Mark quoted from Malachi 3.1. Of John the Baptist, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The obvious reference is to Elijah that is spoken about in Malachi chapter 4 about, about the coming of Elijah and coming before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So Elijah would come. And Jesus, though, is saying this. Yes, Elijah will come in the future, but Elijah already came. And so you start scratching your head and say, how, how can that be? That Elijah came, but Elijah is coming. Is this reincarnation? What is this? Well, I think the best way of explaining this is by showing you a letter. We received a couple letters like this from time to time. This is from the Scooter Store. And um, this is addressed to Stanley Brandon, 7430 Tulagi Trail, Rockford, Illinois, 61108. That's our home address, all right? And I remember the first time we received a letter like this, SR, his name, by the way, is Stanley. Uh, Stanley was about, we called him Stanley Raybag at that time. And he was really into skateboards and really into scooters. And here comes this thing from the scooter store. He's like, cha-ching! What is this about? And, uh, you know, as we open the letter, it says, um, take this test and then take the next step in regaining your independence. Dear Stanley, we've seen it time and time. People who are reluctant to use any mobility assistance because they think they'll become dependent upon it they don't realize that a, a power chair or scooter can make them much more independent than they've ever dreamed, able to lead a more active, satisfying life, and to do more for themselves. That's why we've enclosed your free personal mobility assessment so you can see for yourself just what a difference a power chair or scooter can make. You understand what's going on here? So can we, can we get the slide, the, the, the next slide there that's on the, the PowerPoint? This is the, this is the picture that's shown, all right? So imagine a seven-year-old getting this letter and you're like, What's happening here? There are two Stanley Brandons, right? SR is named after my dad. 
Stanley Brandon, Stanley Brandon. And with two Stanleys, it kind of makes sense then that there was just a mix-up a little bit. It's not this one you're talking about. It's that one you're talking about. It's not reincarnation. It's two different people. So likewise, there are two different Elijahs. Maybe three different Elijahs. Historical Elijah, John the Baptist Elijah, and Elijah who will come in the future to repair all things. John the Baptist certainly came, Luke 1, 17, in the spirit and power of Elijah. And there's another one in the future, Matthew 17, verse 11. And I think, by the way, let's learn a little bit of a lesson from eschatology here. Even with the Elijah prophecy fulfilled, it's still hard to understand. And I think much of eschatology in the future, we can try as hard as we can, and we ought to make efforts to try to figure out what's going to happen, but I think it's only after the fact, after we see history, that we'll say, oh, that's how it all worked out. Because I think these disciples, right in the midst of things, were totally confused. John was confused. Right when they asked John, are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. But Jesus said that John the Baptist was Elijah. I think John didn't even fully understand his role and his significance in the unfolding of God's plan as it was taking place. I don't think John realized that. And I, I think that many times, end, end times event will only make sense when God explains and we kind of look back on it and say, ah, oh, that, that makes sense. And, and I, I think in some regard, this is where the disciples faced their major difficulty. They, they were right there in the midst of Messiah trying to figure this out, trying to, trying to understand Elijah, trying to understand suffering, trying to understand resurrection, and they, could, they, couldn't, they couldn't quite do it. Even though, by the way, they captured and they saw Jesus in all His glory like none of us will ever see. But I want you to be encouraged here this morning that even with this debriefing, they still didn't understand, as we're going to see in the Gospel of Mark, that we are better off than they were. Now, you, you, might, you might be thinking to yourself, even as I preach, boy, I wish I was on the trans, Mount of Transfiguration. I wish I would have seen the glories of Jesus. I, I wish I would have seen His face shining like a sun and His feet like burnished bronze. And I wish I would have seen this shirt shining like this. I mean, I would have loved to see this. Can I see that? And you know what Peter says? Peter said, you're better off than I was. You have a better vantage point. You have the vantage point of history to see and understand Jesus. You have the benefit of the Scriptures which explain the work of Christ to us. We're better off. And So let's just finish our time this morning in 2 Peter. So turn back to 2 Peter right towards the end of your Bible. As Peter, as Phil read for us already this morning, gives commentary on what happened on that mountain. And he gives commentary in such a way that says, yes, I had the experience, but you have something better. And and, and the experience merely confirmed what you have. So don't think and wish that you could have it better if you were Peter because actually we've got it better here. Verse 16. I'll just read the same thing that Phil did, adding some comments here. For... We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we are eyewitnesses of His majesty. Now, as you think about Mark chapter 9, and you think about the transfiguration of Jesus, it's very, very tangible. It's very touchy. It's, very, it's the light shining like the sun. It, it is glowing. It is, is extreme white. It is Jesus talking there. They were hearing it with their ears. They were seeing Jesus with their eyes. It wasn't a dream. It's not that they dreamed this. This was actually happening. And he said, that's his point, I was eyewitnesses of His majesty. I saw His majesty. For when He received glory, honor and glory from God the Father, 
That is talking about this voice. This wasn't just a, an angelic voice. This was God the Father made an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory. This is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He doesn't finish the whole quote there, but he gets the thrust of it. God, this majestic glory from heaven, spoke to everybody identifying Jesus. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. Right? It went into our ears. We saw it with our eyes. We heard it with our ears. And then here comes the conclusion. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. That's the effect. Let me read verse 19 again. We have the prophetic word made more sure. In other words, don't look to the mountain. The mountain makes sure the Scriptures. It's the Scriptures that we have that have been made more sure by that experience. The experience isn't the reliable guide. It's the Scriptures that is the reliable guide. And that which happened on the mountain merely confirms the written Word. And that written Word explains to us and tells us how Jesus came as a suffering servant. And what the disciples didn't fully understand and realize when they were on the mountain, they would understand it later. Peter himself would go to Israel and say, God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Tell you to the Jews. And 3,000 then believed. And Peter's the same one that said, there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. And Jesus, and Peter even said, it's Jesus Himself who bore our sins in His body on the cross. See, as years later, the understanding came, but I think the understanding came only in retrospect as they looked back and they remembered His glory. And I guess really the obvious question here now is, is you, do you believe this? Do you, do you believe that Jesus is everything that I described Him to be? And thus, are you willing to obey Him? Are you willing to follow after Him? Just abandoning everything you have to pursue and follow after Jesus Christ. That's what He calls for. And He is every bit worthy to do so, and you'll never be disappointed in Him. Let's pray and trust our souls to the Lord. Father, thank You for this story. I pray that it would be confirming in our hearts the glories of Christ to each and every one of us. That we would see that He is indeed the, the Lord of the universe. That He is the Sovereign One. God, give us reason to see and to follow and obey. Thank You that we stand afterwards to see and understand a suffering Messiah makes total sense to us. Yet there may be other things in our life, O Lord, that don't make sense to us. And I pray even as we see the disciples who are struggling with this, we struggle with other things. We don't know Your your sovereign plan decreed before the foundation of the world. There's lots of things in our lives we plan away and yet, Lord, You direct our steps. And I pray that we would be every bit as trusting as the disciples lacked God, just trusting in You to, to know that You care for us. You guide us and guard us and protect us and help us to be students of Your Word to realize that, that the Bible we have is, is more sure than any experience because it's been confirmed through what these disciples experienced on the mountain. So I pray, O oh Lord, that You would help us in these days. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.